and uh, reflect on that for a few moments this evening. There's, uh, I don't know which gallery it's in, but there's a very elaborate Renaissance painting that depicts the suffering Christ surrounded by really mythical cherubs. And one of these cherubs is with his finger touching one of the thorns on the crown of thorns. And he has a, a, a very uh, bemused look on his face. He can't make sense of this. There's a sort of unbelieving wonder. For he's been told that the crown of thorns, along with the other things that Christ suffered, meant great agony to him. But because he is incapable himself of feeling anything, he cannot understand pain. And because he cannot understand pain, he cannot sympathize. And because he cannot sympathize, he does not have it within him to help. Now I said, he's a mythical cherub, not one of the true angels of scripture who are able to help. But that bemusement that that cherub is indicated by the artist uh, to uh, express helps us to understand how it is that Jesus sympathizes so deeply with our sufferings and with our weakness. For he too was made weak. He has the capacity for suffering. He endured suffering. He faced temptation. And therefore, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And who's that? Well, of course, every single one of us. We all face temptation in scores of different ways. And this verse casts some very helpful light on this subject. For, we, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. It doesn't simply tell us Jesus was tempted. It tells us that he suffered when being tempted. So the first thing we could draw from these words is this, I think. This verse helps us to understand that Jesus helps us by sharing our suffering. He helps us by sharing our suffering. He himself suffered the incarnation. When the Son of God came into this world, became human amongst us, that exposed him to the experience of suffering. We know that his entry into this world was not calm, serene, and detached. It was very real, it was very gritty. There were very unpleasant elements about it. He wasn't surrounded by luxury and privilege. From his birth in Bethlehem to his death outside Jerusalem, Jesus felt the rough and raw impact of suffering in so many ways. Hardship was present at his birth. The experience of fear and insecurity led Joseph and Mary to seek asylum in Egypt. Throughout his life, Jesus experienced social deprivation, 
physical and verbal assault and the pain of rejection. He suffered from the faithlessness of his friends and those closest to him, from the fickleness of the crowds, as well as the vindictiveness of his enemies. And finally, he endured the reality of death with all its horrors, the cruel, brutal, and barbarous death of crucifixion. He experienced suffering and the temptation that goes with suffering. You see, the power of Christ's sympathy does not lie so much in his divine omniscience. I emphasize the fact that Christ experienced suffering. Of course, the Son of God in heaven knew of suffering. He knew all the details of people's suffering. He knew exactly what it was like. But he hadn't experienced it for himself. So his sympathy doesn't lie so much in his divine omniscience, nor in his mere capacity to suffer. It comes from the fact that he actually suffered. He went through agonies. Only one who has suffered can feel with others in their suffering. At times, we have all felt that others just don't understand. They're not where we are. They haven't had to put up with what we have to put up. It's only those who have suffered that can feel the suffering of others. Family and friends try, and to a certain extent they might succeed, but who knows the true pain, the real disappointment, and the deep hurt that lies down deep in our souls. And at such times, we may do well to hum to ourselves the words of the old American spiritual, nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows but Jesus. He himself plumbed the depths, and he knows. He helps us by sharing in our suffering. He knows what you're going through tonight, whatever it might be. Whatever challenge, whatever makes your life uncomfortable, whatever distresses and upsets you, he knows. He's experienced suffering for himself. And when you add the experience of his suffering to his divine omniscience, well, what a powerful combination that is. It means he can empathize, he can sympathize with everyone in every situation, in every circumstance. Nothing of human suffering is hidden from him and is outside his ability to empathize with and people to sympathize for. And the second simple point that comes out of this this evening is that Jesus helps us by experiencing temptation. He experienced suffering, sharing our suffering, and he experienced temptation. 
We read, he himself suffered when he was tempted. Suffering's never spiritually neutral. It always works for or against our spiritual good. Temptation, in turn, brings its own round of suffering and pain and bruising. And every experience of temptation presents before us the challenge of our response. Will our temptations turn out to be stepping stones or will they be stumbling blocks? Will they take us forward in our spiritual life? Will they make us more like Jesus? Or will they hinder us and set us back and create a response within us which is unchristlike? Will our response to temptation glorify God? Or will it promote the devil's arrogance? And that is not only true for us, but in principle, that was true for Jesus. Each time Jesus suffered temptation, he was being pushed to the test. Would he remain faithful to God? Or would Satan claim a victory? Jesus was tempted when he suffered. And he suffered when he was tempted. And by becoming man, he exposed himself to the conflicts and the tensions of our experience. And these sufferings and their attendant temptations all reached their climax at the cross. In being willing to go to the cross, Jesus was willingly opening himself up to the devil's greatest onslaught. In a way that we're never permitted to do because of the danger it exposes us to, Jesus courted temptation. He lured the devil into that final conflict that resulted in the devil's defeat. And although Jesus had been tempted before the cross, famously in the wilderness, but right throughout his life, and just, of course, just as famously in the garden, the night before he went to the cross, it was at the cross itself that his faithfulness to God was put to its supreme test. At the cross, the powers of hell did their very worst to bring him down. And Jesus didn't distance himself from the reality of this satanic conflict. No buffer zone was created. He engaged in this conflict. And it is from that ultimate encounter of temptation and suffering and death and the victory over it that he achieved that his sympathy for us 
in our struggles derives. No one was tempted more than Jesus was tempted. Don't think that the holiness of Christ mitigated the strength of the temptation. It didn't. In fact, the very reverse. The more holy Jesus was, the more the devil threw at him. How different from us? When we're tempted, we crumble before the pressure really comes on. We crumble, we give in, we fail. Jesus resisted everything that was in Satan to throw at him. And he triumphed over it and over him. In a way that we never can. By his steadfast resistance, he felt the full force of temptation. He battled with remorseless attack. And although Satan knows how to exert merciless pressure at our very weakest points, because of all that Jesus has endured, we are not alone in the struggle. In him we have someone who is sympathetic to us. And that word, of course, sympathetic, literally means he suffers with us. He's in it with us. He knows because he has been there. In every respect, we are told in another place, he has been tempted as we are. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And that finally brings us to the point that is so encouraging for us this evening. That enduring this temptation, facing it, all its strength, all its power, Jesus helps us by supplying us with his strength. He is able to help those who are being tempted. Now, Jesus' strength can be thought of in a number of ways. Two of them, obvious ways, is that on the first hand, there is the strength of passive resistance. He was able to resist everything that was thrown against it, no matter how bombarded by temptations hurled against him uh, by Satan. Jesus remained stubbornly unmoved and absolutely unyielding. He wouldn't give an inch. With total clarity, he saw the origin and the aim of temptation and remained obstinate in the face of it. And Utterly uncompromising. That's the strength of his passive resistance of temptation. But his strength was also the aggressive power of active engagement. His very action in coming into this world, of opening himself up to suffering and temptation, had as its ultimate purpose the destruction of the devil and all that he stood for. The history of the human struggle against temptation and sin centers, of course, around two great champions. Our first representative was Adam. 
and he failed. And he gave in to temptation. And he dragged us down with him. And not only us, but the whole creation as a consequence. That was our first representative. And he didn't do it for us. But the second Adam, who was Jesus, triumphed. I love the way that that great old hymn, Praise to the Holiest in the Height, celebrates this, this glorious truth. Let me give you a couple of uh, verses from it. O loving wisdom from our God, when all was sin and shame, a second Adam to the fight and to the rescue came. O wisest love, that flesh and blood which did in Adam fail, should strive afresh against the foe, should strive and should prevail. That's our great encouragement. That Christ has faced this for us. Christ is our advocate. He is our representative. He is our champion. He does these things not for himself, but for us, his people. And today, when the moral and spiritual climate is set against Christian values, when materialism is rife, when Christian morality has at almost every turn been abandoned, and where secularism is the very atmosphere that we breathe, where everything, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to use those biblical categories, is set against us, well, little wonder that we fail to rise even to our own standards, let alone achieve the standards that God sets. And with that failure comes disillusionment and frustration and maybe a sense of pointlessness. Is it worth the battle? Is it worth the struggle? Especially when we see so many of our contemporaries unable to cope with the pressures. And it is at that point when we become painfully aware of our own inability to resist, it is wonderful to be reminded of Christ's strength made available to us, that he supplies the strength that we lack, that he gives us his grace, that he imparts to us the energy to say no to the blandishments of the devil. The great glory of the incarnation is that God's Son, Jesus Christ, united himself with our human nature and he lived and suffered and was tempted as our champion and our substitute. As I've said it already, I say it again. What he did, he did for us. So much so that we can claim that we have triumphed in him, for all our failures, for all our failures as Christians, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Because what gives us the victory is his victory, not our overcoming, 
of temptation. So it's absolutely true that in Jesus we have an understanding shoulder to cry on when we have frustrated failures. We also have a perfect example to follow when we're all at sea and we don't know where to go. And we have a sound teacher to guide us through the maze of opinions and the confusion that surrounds us. But he's much, much, much more than all these. When the Christian feels up against it, he, she can draw the strength that they need that they don't naturally have from the fact of their union with Christ. Tell yourself, you're not facing this. You are in him and he is facing it. You are in him. He is in you. His victory is your victory. Now, you, you know what it's like, the sort of tradition that we, we move in. Now, a classic comment, a couple of us were passing a comment about this this morning over coffee. That folks would like love to come to be communicant members of a congregation. That, that's in their heart. They would really love to do that, but oh, they're not good enough. Of course they're not. Whoever found a human being good enough to serve Christ, good enough to come to his table, good enough to be a member of his church, that's not what qualifies us, being good enough. He's good enough. More than good enough. And in the face of temptation, he's strong enough. And in his grace, despite our failures, that's the paradox. In his grace, we overcome. We may be weak, but his strength is seen to perfection in our weakness. We find victories in even the most one-sided battles. And that is why we must not think of prayer or worship as somehow just putting us in touch with the possibility of God's help. It's far, far more than that. We're encouraged to come to a throne of grace and there find grace to help us in our time of need. The throne of grace doesn't offer to us the possibility of help. It offers us help. Prayer and worship are traditionally referred to as means of grace. In other words, channels along which God's grace flows to us. The throne of grace doesn't offer the possibility. It offers us the reality. The throne of grace is, if you like, a can-do place. I haven't been to America for a long time now. But I used to enjoy my pretty frequent trips there at one time. And I used to love to go into an American diner and order a meal over the counter. And uh, you'd reel off what you wanted, and you'd very often get a cheery response. You got it. You got it. 
And if looking back over another year, we find ourselves depressed by the past, still struggling with temptation, still enduring the shame of failure, still filled with fear of the future, we can take heart that at the throne of grace, we find the same can-do response. You need help, you got it. You need wisdom, you've got it. You need endurance, you've got it. You see, Jesus is not only able to help, our text tells us that, and that's wonderful, he is able to help those who are being uh, tempted, but Jesus is not only able to help, not only, not only able to deliver from temptation, not only able to keep us from falling or to do more than we would dare to ask or think, he is willing to help. He is willing to deliver. He is willing to keep. He is willing to sustain and willing to support. So that really takes us a couple of chapters further on. The Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16. As we go into this new year, as we go boldly into this new year, if that in fact is our mood, if we go confident, let's be confident in this that Jesus actively enables us to be victors, not victims, more than conquerors, not mere copers. What a difference of outlook and perspective. How we often opt for the more defeatist outlook when God's word gives us this very affirming, positive, encouraging mood. Hebrews 4, 15 to 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. That's what we're challenged to do in this coming year. Hold fast to our confession. Not waver, not capitulate, not fudge, not give in. And we can do it. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Well, why does the writer to the Hebrews put it in a negative way, like that? That we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Well, he does it because we've got precisely the opposite. We have a high priest who is able to sympathize with our weakness. He is one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet he never gave in. Not once, not for a moment, not for a second. He was tempted without sin. So what? Well, this is the so what. Let us then 
with confidence, not a confidence of arrogance, a confidence that comes from a warm welcome and a clear invitation, let us then come with boldness, with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And who knows what our needs are going to be in 2024? Uh, we may go through the year relatively unscathed, but we may go through deep waters. Who knows? We don't know. God does know. But whatever, whatever we face, we're promised here as we go to that throne of grace and as we ask for grace to help in our time of need, the Lord who sits on that throne looks us in the eye and he says, you've got it. You've got it. Let's go into this next year then with that confidence, with that assurance, with that knowledge that if God before us, who can be against us? That the greatest of all victors is on our side. And you will carry his people through every experience and finally bring them into his glory. May he bless his word to us. We're going to conclude by saying,